Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you have not already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We always want to hear from you and get your feedback. And of course, read us over at IndieCornrows.com. Uh, Caitlin and I had a bunch of really great draft profiles go up over there that would make sense for you and your Pacers fandom or your fandom of another team or just your love of basketball and wanting to understand more about the guys coming in next year. So without further ado... Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Are you at all afraid that while we're recording this, that there's going to be news breaking that somebody has been traded? Can only hope. Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't. I was at a, actually out at a movie when uh, the Christian Wood trade happened, so I was a. Uh, uh, it was interesting to come out to, um, but I, I think that we should probably be okay today. Of course, I say that now, but I'm sure something will happen in the middle. Well, the Pacers are being mentioned in a lot of various rumors, so it feels like anything's possible in the next, uh, we have one week until the draft, actually now six days until the draft, so um, do you want to launch into any of that discussion? Our favorite topic, rumors corner. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, we can we can dive right into that. Uh, the, I mean, first and foremost, uh, I, Mark Stein reported that Miles Turner is going to I don't remember the exact wording, but is not likely to sign an extension with the Pacers. Uh, and that that is more than more than noteworthy. I mean, it definitely feels so. I mean, we kind of talked about this before in the sense that um, he mentions in that report that they have through next season that they could continue. The two sides could reach an agreement on an extension like it doesn't have to be done this summer before the season. But it does feel a little bit reminiscent. And I don't think that their thinking is necessarily the same, but of the Victor situation in a way, because, you know, Victor comes out of that bubble season, didn't have a great showing, and it very much felt like the Pacers were going to need to take a measured approach with that, let him come back and play. And to Victor's credit, he did start that season under Nate Bjorkren for those first however many games, looked better, was shooting the ball pretty well, at least better by comparison to how he had been playing in the bubble that raised his value enough to the point where they could flip him for Karras. And now they've since flipped Karras again, but point being, that's kind of how I felt all along that like they could bring, even if miles isn't going to sign the extension, they could technically bring him back, let him re probably revamp some of what his value is. I don't know. I honestly have no idea what his market would be right now. I around the trade deadline before the foot injury happened. I kind of felt like fair value was the deal that, the magic had gotten in exchange for Aaron Gordon from the nuggets where you're taking on, you know, Gary Harris's contract, getting RJ Hampton as a young player on a rookie deal. And then also getting, you know, a pick that felt realistic to me. I don't know how that changes once, you know, he's had two consecutive seasons. Now sounds like both of his feet are healthy, but you know, I don't know how opposing executives are going to view that um, not finishing out either season. So um it feels like they could come back and if he plays well and, and he does do better at Solify with Tyrese, then maybe that helps his value a little bit, but it does take us back into that spot that both of us have talked about where, you know, these last several seasons have felt very segmented and it's like that they're just going through phases until they can get to the next thing where it feels very much to me, at least from a coverage standpoint, that it would be nice, like for one pacer season to just start with the roster that they anticipate having. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think if they're going to make a trade or if they're contemplating it, which clearly they have, then just, just make it happen now. I'm kind of sick and tired of going into things, uh, you know, feeling like one foot in, in each different direction. And it's just I, I'd like to just see something happen there because clearly like this has been bubbling up for for a while, um, you know, I'm, and I, I'm not trying to say anything harsh about Miles. I, I get it to it, you know, to a degree. It just it, it this just doesn't feel like a very tenable relationship for either side. Yeah, I mean, can you remember the last time that there was a trade deadline or a draft where you weren't reading Miles Turner trade rumors? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I actually made, 
it was a I don't know if you saw it. I made a very dumb joke the other day. Uh, like, you know, I wonder, you know, with, with all of the talks of Sacramento looking to move the fourth overall pick, I wonder if the Kings have thought about trading for Miles Turner. <laughs> and like, we've never seen what, what the modest bonus of Miles Turner look like in front court. I wonder what that could be. And yeah, it's, I, I feel like I've been reading about Miles and his trade value since like 2017, 2018. So it's been a while. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think John Hollinger and Nate Duncan had the number where they can offer him four years, $97 million, and a possible extension, I think, is the most they can offer. And in Miles's perspective, I mean, and I, I want to be careful here with the way that I word this because I have no problem with players having whatever reason that they want to play where they want to play or for whatever reason that they're motivated to play. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we think back to exit interviews, you and I had talked about this not on the podcast, but when he was asked a question about Jalen Smith and his contract, Miles's direct quote was get your money, man. At the end of the day, we all play this game for fun, but the underlying thing is we do this to take care of our family. And again, I don't have a problem. Like if that's, if, if that's a main contributing factor, I certainly wouldn't criticize a close friend of mine if they wanted to leave a job because they got offered more money somewhere else. So, but that did feel a little bit telling to me that, that, that definitely matters to Miles. So I don't know if I would necessarily, and like, let's put this into being a competitor standpoint. Miles has never been out of the first round of the playoffs during his entire tenure with the Pacers. And I don't know that he should feel confident about that happening with next season's roster either. So I don't know that even if they have more time, what exactly is going to change to get him to change his mind on that? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I think we're in the exact same boat on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I know that there's been some confusion that I've seen online about, you know, this is the first time where trading miles hasn't made sense. Like to me, this is the first time where it's kind of like make a decision. Finally, yeah. like he's entering the final year of his contract. You're, you're just, you're absolutely not letting him walk for nothing. If you can get a good return right now. And especially you have to think of it from the team context standpoint. Cause I mean, this is another thing that's you and I have said many times on this podcast over the last month or so, like looking at how the team looked over the back end of the season. And yeah, I know that there was, you know, multiple people. They never, you know, TJ Warren never played. Malcolm Brogdon was in and out. Chris Duarte also had the toe injury. Like I, I understand all of that, but I don't know that they were just those players being back and healthy away from being confident that they can be a playoff team next year. So it kind of becomes the point, and I don't want this to sound harsh, but what is the point? Like if if you can get more bites at the apple now, and really you, you traded a two-time all-star for Tyrese Halliburton looks very promising. Then, you know, kind of like our conversation when PD Webb was on here, when we had the AJ Griffin pod, then be all about it go all in on that because that's probably the window where you have a chance to be more competitive. So, you know, if they can get something for Malcolm Brogdon, which we haven't talked about him yet quite either, but you know, or with miles, if he's already decided he's not going to sign that extension, I fully understand and, and, you know, probably support that approach. Yeah, no, 100%. Do you, do you want to talk about Malcolm actually? Yeah, I think we probably should since his name's been out there probably even more frequently than miles has. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm probably in the camp. It's not like I think that you necessarily have to trade Malcolm, but um, I don't know. I mean, it feels like, and based on some, some reporting and just things that have been written by people who are, are even more connected than you and I, like it, it seems like Malcolm is close to a, a negative value contract right now, or seen that way, just given what his injury status has been. Um, I don't think the money's anything heinous. I do think like, you know, there are some teams who could view Malcolm as a definite upgrade for sure, but they would have to be a little bit more hamstrung too and what they can do in terms of moving around. But I think it's more so like, I just view it more as like, okay, well, it's not that I think you have to trade Malcolm to, to, to quote unquote, be a better team. But I think to make more sense, like, again, like you drafted Chris Duarte with a lottery pick. I think that you need to clear up playing time. Or, or not even necessarily playing time, but I just think you need to make it more clear. Like, okay, this is, we're about Tyrese and Chris moving forward. Like what does a Malcolm Brogdon 28% usage season do for him or this team next year? I, I don't really think that there's a lot there that makes me super excited about that. Well, yeah. And, and I don't like, I hate what I'm about ready to say. I loathe huh. myself for it, but 
I don't like reading into social media and Twitter posts, but you know, the Golden State Warriors win the NBA finals last night and the Pacers put out a tweet saying next season starts now. And it's a picture of Tyrese uh, Halliburton and Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson. Yeah. So that feels a little bit like, you know, hedging the bets on who's going to be back and who isn't. But um, it's if we go back to the Malcolm Brogdon season in review pod, I still think that he and Tyrese could play together if your yeah. goal was to be competitive next season. I do think it would take a change in mentality from both of them. And I'm not entirely sure how confident I am in that completely happening and just total reckless speculation on my part. Um, I think that Malcolm Brogdon is a competitor. I think he wanted to come back and play, but there was a small part of me and I don't know how you feel about this, but when he came back and played for those eight games, especially, I mean, he was practically a paint missile averaging over 22 drives per game, being very aggressive. A lot of the offense was tilting back toward Malcolm Brogdon, especially in late game situations, which there is context needed there for why that happened in certain spots that if people want to listen to, they can go back and listen to that pod. But point being, there was a small piece of me that wondered, hey, if both sides thought, let's bring you back after the All-Star break, have you play and show that you're healthy. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, they had talked about, you know, Tyrese is, you know, our franchise point guard. We know that Malcolm has had interest in wanting to show that he is a point guard and the timelines just don't exactly match up. Um, he's had his injury history, which I'm sure, like you said, is contributing to what his value is right now. But um, I don't know that I necessarily saw that. I mean, there was enough compelling evidence from those eight games, even though it was a very tiny sample size to at least be somewhat concerned about what the fit was between the two of them. So um, I think that if you could get a first round pick, especially, you know, that's probably asking a lot, given that people are saying it's a negative value contract. Um, when the Knicks were being mentioned, I thought it might be realistic that they might be mo- willing to move because they have multiple picks in next year's draft and mm. as well as number 11 this year. Um, that that's something that, you know, I think the Pacers probably do that yeah. um, as well as with the Wizards who have been mentioned in that conversation as well. But the one piece that the Pacers have kind of working against them is because he is already signed to that extension. I think it's probably going to be a little bit difficult to find a deal for him in the next six days because teams know, hey. You know, we can go into the draft and see who falls where we might be able to make a different deal for a point guard in the draft or, you know, we can wait through free agency. If we're the New York Knicks, we can wait and definitely make sure that Jalen Brunson's going to return to the Mavericks and then we can circle back to the Pacers. So if a trade gets done, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised if it's later on into the offseason once teams have ruled out other options but are still looking for an upgrade. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm right there with you. I think that totally makes sense. Cause it's not like they're necessarily like the case with miles Turner, you know, if the Pacers are putting it out there, like, Hey, and I don't know that they are, but if they're like, Hey, this guy isn't going to sign an extension, we're ready to move now, you know, send your best offers. They don't have that same degree of leverage leverage right now with Malcolm Brogdon because teams know, well, he's not going anywhere. You already signed him for the next, you know, however many years, mm-hmm. but um Yeah. So the other piece that Jake has in this, that kind of parlays into what we actually plan for this podcast um, Jake Fisher over at Bleacher Report, friend of the podcast, says that um, Indiana is exploring to trade the number 31 pick plus the Cleveland 2023 first round pick that was part of the return for Karis LeVert in hopes of acquiring an additional second round pick. Um, I don't think that that's very surprising to me because, I mean, listening to Kevin Pritchard and the draft lottery media availability. It definitely sounded like they wanted to be as aggressive as possible to potentially get another pick, move up, move down. But he also had one really telling quote that I actually saved from that, where he said, quote, 31 is a beautiful place to be in this draft. It's the one pick that you have a lot of creativity in doing a contract. And so if you see a guy falling, there's going to be all kinds of activity around 31, you know, because you're not having to pay the same rookie scale contract and how those negotiations work. So I felt like that was something that they might be willing to dangle even before that news broke from Jake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think too, like just to transition from that too, I, I think, uh, you know, I look at it in terms of like, I just, part of it, you know, I mean, you know me, I'm annoying. I hedge everything. Uh, but I can't really judge if that's a good or bad thing until we see how things play out. Like, I think obviously this team, we, we both want to see them acquire more young talent and um, focus on that. But like, okay, what if you move 31 and like, yeah, of course it could be for 
um, you know, another pick, but also, all right, what if there's a guy who was a, a mid to late first round pick a year or two ago and hasn't really completely worked for his team. And um, there's an opportunity to, to bring in somebody that they were high in high on that's still young and, and uh, has, has more of a chance here. I don't know. Like there, there's a lot of ways that they could go with it. That'll be interesting. I will be annoyed if they do just a random trade for a vet, but that doesn't, you know, given that's a reporting one, that's not what it looks like it's going to be. Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to scrape together pocket change to move up and get yeah. an additional first, which, you know, they have brought in some people in for workouts that seem like they'll either be fringe late first rounders or early second rounders. So if they really liked one of those guys, they might just be trying to move up, you know, a few spots in order to get mm-hmm. one of them. Um, you had also mentioned the, the last rumor of rumor corner. Um, Woj had, you know, it's very important to be talking about rumors on the court of the NBA finals before a game clinching performance. Um, Woj from the parquet of TD garden says that I didn't actually see this live, but I did see clips of it that, you know, Sacramento's looking to potentially move the number four pick and the Pacers along with, I believe the wizards, the Knicks, and I don't remember who the other team were, um, are looking to potentially draft Jaden Ivy and want to move up. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Um, Indiana and Sacramento linked hand in hand yet again. Uh, again, interesting. Uh, what did you think hearing that? Um, I know you said you didn't. Well, well, no, you did see that live. Uh, what were your thoughts just kind of when that happened? Well, my first thought is that I never think it's probably a good thing when something like that gets uh, shared publicly, at least from the team's perspective, because, you know, if they don't manage to move up to number four and grab Jaden Ivy, then whoever they draft is going to know, Hey, you wanted to draft Jaden Ivy. Yeah. But um, aside from that, I don't really, I don't know how likely I find that to be. I'm just trying to think of like, what are they trading to, to move up those spots? Especially if it was a direct one-to-one deal with the Kings. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, as a, as a joke, as a joke, some people did not realize it was a joke, even though I put, this is sarcastic. Please don't kill me. Um, what if they, you know, who who knows what a Miles Turner to Monas Sabonis front court could look like? I, I wonder if the Kings have thought about trading number four for him. Like you, you <laughs> joke, but I literally saw somebody. I'm not going to say who, but putting a mock draft together and suggesting that very trade. Jesus Christ! Um, I couldn't. My heart could not handle that. Um, no. Uh, yeah, I just I, I I agree with you. Like, I don't. What are what are they trading? I don't. I don't think that the Pacers really have anything that um, necessarily is is making that um, is necessarily making that deal happen. I just don't know what. Like, even if you're okay, let's say it's like Chris in the sixth overall pick for for four. I don't. I probably wouldn't do that if I'm the Kings. Like, I like Chris, but no, I don't think it's enough. Like, what do you? especially just given like we, how we've talked about this draft and granted, we're not going to know until the next couple of years play out and how guys look and, and what their impact is. But there's a really big difference between drafting Jay and Ivy at four and, and drafting uh, like Keegan Murray or, um, or AJ Griffin at six, you know, you're getting a very different skill set, very different player. And um, so I, I don't, I don't know. I, I would be challenged to see how that deal happens with Sacramento. It's interesting from Sacramento's perspective, because when you look at it, like we already know that Chris plays well with Sabonis. They had a good relationship mm-hmm. on and off the court, especially just based on comments that Chris made. Um, and I think that Benedict Matherin would play well with Sabonis as well for a number of reasons between his, you know, off ball movement, his cutting, mm-hmm. his shooting. That's not really something Sacramento has. So to a certain degree, if you're just basing it on fit, you know, I could understand that. But the funny thing is, is like Jaden Ivey, <laughs> can kind of play, I mean, based on what you saw from him at Purdue between doing some more high pick and roll toward the back end of the season, as well as what he did with like gut DHOs and, and playing off of handoffs with Travion Williams. I actually think he could pl- really play with Sabonis as well. Exactly. If you already didn't have the Aaron Fox on the roster. So if I'm the Kings, they're probably going to get crushed if they take another guard for the billionth time in a draft, especially after they just traded Tyrese Halliburton. But I'm not so sure I wouldn't do that. Yeah. No, exactly. Like I'm very much in the stage of like, I think the, 
I've, I've thought about this a lot. I think the ideal scenario for them is like Jabari Smith falls to four, just because given what the team is trying to do, like, I think a lot of people look at me like, oh, well, you have to take the best player available and, and this and that and potential. And like, yes, but also Monty McNair is probably getting fired if they don't make the playoffs next year. And all of the moves that they've been doing have been shifted towards becoming competitive right now. And while you can quibble about whether or not that's the right thing, I would just say, look up Ubevec, Ron Adive is and everything that he's done. Um, like getting somebody who is more of a forward that can have that defensive presence would be really exciting for them, uh, you know, in terms of that goal. But like, like you're mentioning, the idea of Jaden with Domas, like I was, that was something I was excited about for the Pacers before the the, the Domas trade happened. Like watching Jaden play early in the year, I was like, you know, with if this team keeps playing this poorly, maybe it'll happen. And of course, you know that that did not bear out. But yeah, I'm I, I'm right there with you. I, I don't think you could pass up Jaden Ivy at four. That would be a very tough sell for me. Right. I mean, and even just in comparison to the Pacers, like if you look at the Wizards. If the if the Kings were just dead set on on <laughs> trading that pick, I think it would be a little bit more compelling for you to look at getting two of the three of you know the Rui, Danny Kuzma triad in addition to number ten than it would be to take on you know anything that the Pacers would have to offer. Just from a fit perspective, I think that that would make a lot more sense with where their current roster construction is. So I don't want to rain on the parade. I'm not going to say what Kevin what magic Kevin Pritchard can and cannot make. I certainly didn't think that Tyrese Halliburton was going to be available at the deadline. So um, I wouldn't say I, you know, never say never, but I don't think it's particularly likely. Yeah. Yep. Nope. We're, uh, we're looking at this very much. So in the, in the same light. Um, well, Caitlin, I think that that clears up rumor corner for us. Uh, do you want to, do you want to do what we're here to do today? I definitely do. So it turns out we weren't done talking about draft picks. It's not an episode of stock up, stock down. We're going to do a little bit more of a lightning round where we went through, or I guess I went through for this particular episode and looked at the full list of everyone that the Pacers have brought in for workouts and tried to pinpoint um, two people that I thought could be in range for them at number 31 that they've brought in. And then also look down to um, number 58 and potentially, you know, maybe even a two-way contract. So we're going to cover three players today. And why don't we start out talking about if it's okay with you, um, started out talking about Josh Minot from Memphis. Yeah, he is, um, especially following Memphis this year, he was interesting because he went from starting the year, like just not playing all that much, having a very odd fit on the roster. It's hilarious because he gets, it, he gets listed as a guard, uh, for Memphis. What do you think of the fact that he was listed as a guard? No, definitely yes. not a guard. <laughs> that was the reaction I was, I was looking for. Um, but I will say he's really, he, he is interesting, but he's extremely raw. Like he is not somebody who is in my opinion, like, I, I think like maybe in like a segmented role where he's playing like 10 to 12 minutes a game, just doing energy stuff. And, you know, actually I, he's somebody who could be really interesting playing off of like the Montessi bonus as a cutter, um, and doing some things defensively, but again, very raw. Um, but I guess I'll just ask you, what was, what, what are some of your main takeaways watching him play? So, yeah, something that's really interesting is when I was looking through this list, I was like, oh, I just watched Memphis play several games. <laughs> that was games. another thing I was about to ask you. And just, how much yeah, did you notice Josh Minot? <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, I just watched Memphis play several games because we just did the Jalen Duran pod. Like, that'd be a good one to do because I already have some experience with that. And then in my head, I was like, what do I remember him doing? Yeah. And then when we watched the Houston um, American League Championship game, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, Duran threw him some passes in the dunker spot whenever he was on the short roll. Like, I'll go back and look at that and see. I go that that's really the only enduring memory I have of him. So I got on. I'm like, I'm going to watch some of that. He played five minutes. Yeah. Like he played. And then when I was looking up the schedule because I, I we had already watched other games that Memphis had played. I'm like, well, this is why I don't really remember much of him because I watched the entirety of these games and he was barely out there. So 10 games this year, he played less than 10 minutes in. And I think that that's just mainly a product of like, you know, Jalen Duran made less than 10 jump shots. Josh Minot made two jump shots for the season. Like that's not exactly really easy especially when you don't have a table set or a lot of pull-up shooting so a little bit of an awkward roster fit that I think you know didn't exactly led to him being sparingly used and somewhat of a fluctuating role Um, I think probably the main selling points for him when you watch 
are, you know, 3.1 steals per 100 possessions, solid defensive rebounding rate for his build and size, 15.7%. And then also he has some interesting passing flashes on the move um, for sure where, you know, and it's curious too, because he finished with the exact same number of assists to turnovers. So 31 assists, 31 turnovers. And there's moments where, you know, he'll be in delay and thread a backdoor pass. or like one of, I felt one of the more impressive passes he has, um, they're playing UCF and they put him in the short corner a lot, particularly if an opponent's playing zone and he makes pretty good reads out of that. He can mm-hmm. use a jump cut to go through a double team, make a pass there, or the one that he had, he, he, they came and doubled. He used split the double team, went through, used eye manipulation, looking out at the kick out, and then threw a wrap around to Jalen Duran. So that wasn't his him making a read to the open man. It was actually him manipulating the coverage because the guy jumped out to the kick out and opened that up. So um, also has some, you know, drives from the slot and he'll make some wraparound passes underneath the basket. But he has this other flip side to him where he can be incredibly indecisive with the ball as yeah. well. Like, especially in transition, his handle is really dicey, like in the half court and in transition. Like if he needs to take more than about one or two dribbles, like I said, it's going to get a little iffy to put it nicely. It's, it's fairly loose. He dribbles pretty high. Um, but then, like I said, you'll see some of the passing chops and you'll be like, hey, if this guy can be getting steals and he can make some passes, you know, that's an interesting player to take a flyer on, especially given what some of his defensive skills are as well. Yeah, I think he's somebody you would have to have. And he could be somebody interesting for, you know, a team that is really trying to focus on the future. If you think about it, like he like he's very much so somebody that I think you would have to take a long term view with, because uh, part of what makes him so indecisive in my eyes is like his finishing is a is a problem. Like he's not a shooter at any stage right now. He took point four threes per game and I think he hit like two this year. Um, And that tracks, you know, going back to his time in high school as well. He's just never really been a shooter on volume um, and there hasn't really been a lot of efficacy in it. Um, but the finishing is, is even more saying problematic feels unfair, but I think it's just very clear how raw he is. Like you mentioned, the handle is an issue right now. Um, and then finishing through any sort of contact that isn't, you know, if he, if he has a runway and he doesn't have really, and he's, you know, attacking off the catch into a dunk, that's one thing. But if it's a drive into trying to finish through somebody who's, you know, following, who's uh, tracking him the entire way, like that it felt like he rarely made any, like he had a couple of like really crafty like euros. Um, but again, that's more attacking off the catch without somebody right on him. If there's somebody fault, like, you know, tracking him on a drive, then it's a very, uh, very dicey finish. A lot of falling away finishes, um, a lot of, you know, offhand, uh, floaters or, or layups to try and, um, finish around contact and it just is not really there for him right now. So it definitely makes you more like, okay, well, if he's not going to have the scoring or the shooting, how is he getting the most out of his playmaking? Well, yeah, because, and and then it brings up interesting like positional questions as well, because I don't think that, you know, the face up game being out there to three and making a play, if he even gets a closeout are necessarily going to be a thing because the, the shot like I'm not, I don't really like using the word broken, but he's he's bringing the ball down below his waistline when he releases it, and a lot of times, like if he catches it on the wing, if he if he swings into a catch slightly on the wing, he has a lot of trouble getting his feet, you know, squared up, and then he's also bringing the ball down to his waist, almost into like a wind up motion. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of correction just there in and of itself that's going to need to happen. That's already going to make it even harder for the things that you just mentioned, if he's going to be putting the ball down on the floor against a defense that some is somewhat collapsed as well. Um, because of what some of the passing flashes are, it's kind of like what we talked about with Jeremy Sohan. It makes me think that, you know, he might be somewhat interesting at a small by five position, but he doesn't have the size or the frame that Jeremy Sohan has. So mm-hmm. um, pretty spindly, narrow frame. So I don't know that that's necessarily going to be in the cards completely either, but, you know, I feel like, and these aren't, I'm not at all saying that these are the same player, but I feel like his development track would be, it would be beneficial to have him do kind of how Edmund Sumner was brought along by the Pacers and that he played a lot of games for the Mad Ants, stayed there, really got to work on, you know, 
some of his passing and he played a lot of point under Steve Ganzi, got to work on areas of his game that he wouldn't necessarily have gotten to work on if he was getting sparing minutes with the Pacers. I feel like that's probably how Josh Minot's going to need to be brought along is Mm -hmm. um, splitting a lot of time between, but um, given that, you know, well, I guess we didn't really talk about the defense either because I feel like he's fairly raw on that end of the floor. Too. Yes, definitely. Uh, like the, the stocks go crazy, but the uh, so do the fouls. Yeah, his foul rate per 100 possessions is 6.8, and he also pokes his nose where it doesn't belong quite a bit. Um, it's like he doesn't fully understand the length of the leash that he should have when he's going to go dig or he's going to shoot a passing lane and the footwork isn't completely clear where you'd rather be seeing him snap his head and keep his inside arm in and he takes a wrong step and then, you know, he's just completely beat and gambled. And I also noticed a lot of moments um, throughout the games that I've watched of both of them where Duran's having to give him quite a bit of direction on the defensive end and tell him. Um, certain positions that he needs to be in, which speaks well of Duran as only an 18-year-old, but um, also speaks that I think that there's going to have to be um, some development there for him as well. A little bit too free as a free safety, which I think is kind of what his role would be at the NBA level. Definitely. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, I uh, Yeah, and it's not meant to be like all negative, but again, like when we're talking more about like late first, second round guys, like this is kind of what we're looking at. Like there's going to be some more, rawness here especially for somebody like my who's coming in with uh you know what his skill skill set is right now yeah because the, the to go back to the jump shot he shot two of 15 on catch and shoot jumpers five of 22 on jump shots overall and what was curious is when you look at synergy 10 of the jump shots were guarded which at first glance before i had watched a lot of like wow, people are playing him that close when, you know, this is what his jump shot is, but no, they're not really playing him close. It's like, if he catches it at the top of the wing and the nearest defender is inside the opposite elbow, they still will have enough time to close out because of how long it takes him to get a shot off. So, um, that is the result of why so many of his low volume of jump shots was, um, contested, but yeah. Um, I think that pretty much covers him unless you have anything else that you want to say. No, I, uh, no, I think I'm good on him. Uh, who do you want to go to next? So the other player that could, you know, well, I guess I should have said Josh Minot has worked out with a lot of teams. I think that he's yeah. upwards to like 17 workouts has worked with the Spurs twice. And when he was recently working out for the jazz, um, he said, they asked him what he felt his draft range was. And he said, anywhere, between 20 and 40. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's kind of the case with several of these guys that the Pacers have brought in that might seem like they're in, you know, and play for 31, that there's some range here. So the next guy is Christian Brown, Kansas. Um, There's a chance he might go in the late first round, but I felt like probably worth talking about him as in play for 31. And as well, if the Pacers are thinking about moving 31, because I feel like his context is quite a bit different than what Josh Minot's is. Yeah, he is. I don't like I like Christian Brown. He is a weird player in some ways. Like um he's kind I, I of think, the opposite of what you think he should be. Yeah, exactly. Like just watching him, like he went from somebody who shot pretty well on very low volume his freshman year, then shot worse on higher volume his sophomore year. And then this year shot better, but again, lower volume. And it was weird because like he's somebody who I think my biggest hangup with him was how much he deferred and like turned down shots. Like he was very much so somebody who's like, I want to drive instead of I want to take this open shot or I want to pass to, to Oshai Abaji or somebody else on the wing instead of taking this open shot. Like he's, he's somebody I want to see be more aggressive, which like, even if you just look at his box score, it looks like, Oh wow, this guy really good. Um, but I think that there's, uh, there's definitely a lot there with him that intrigues me, but I think a lot's going to be on like, how how much of this is is wiring and how much this was things that he was asked to do at Kansas uh and how much do you think you can actually change some of that because I do think that's going to be really important with him because he's somebody like especially for what his role is going to be like he's got to take a lot of shots because right now his skill set is almost like a four at times even though he's more of like a two and a half two or three um because like I mean what do you think of his handle in the half court I think overall that he needs, it's exactly what you said. I think he needs to reverse some of his shooter drive decisions when he's on the catch. Um, 
and spot up situations, he took no dribble jumpers on 47% of his spot ups and put the ball on the deck, whether that's a one dribble jumper or going to the basket or into floater range on 53%. And when you watch him, there's times where he, it, it feels to you that he has the airspace to get off the shot, but he's just automatically thinking to drive. And I think that's somewhat twofold. And I don't know that I'm as bothered by the handle as how close his feet are together most of the time. Like if you look at his stance when he's catching the ball, he's like the reverse AJ Griffin. And that, you know, AJ Griffin looks like he's riding a horse. And I think that that limits his ability to attack closeouts because it's making his first step a lot shorter. And Christian Brown's case, there's times where he practically looks like the game I was watching them play against Creighton he looks almost pigeon-toed like his feet were practically on top of each other. So for him to then be in a shoot-first mode, that's that's going to make it a little bit harder. It limits his first step, and then I also think his last step could be a little bit better in terms of what his finishing is. Um, to use a comparison, again, not the, again, I do not think that these are identical players in any way, shape, or form, but the one thing that A.J. Griffin does do well, and though he barely gets to the basket out of spot-up situations, is he does have a good last step getting into contact when he goes um, baseline. I think Christian could get a little bit better about that to, in order for him to get to the front of the rim in some of those situations. Um, I don't. I think the main thing that I think about with his handle that would help him is if he became a little bit more of a continuous playmaker. Like one of my favorite things about Chris Duarte when he attacks the closeout is that he has a probe dribble that he can keep that alive, get to the other side of the basket and still be looking and, and eyeing where potential outlets might be, or he might reverse back into, you know, his favorite little turnaround mid range two that he hits at a fairly decent clip. Um, Christian's more somebody who's going to drive directly on a straight line. And when the defense comes, he's going to stop and pivot and then look and find the open guy. He doesn't do a lot of stuff that's directly staying in motion. So I think if he's developed, like let's say the Pacers did take him. And I think this is probably what Rick Carlisle would do. I think he needs to be developed as a shooter first, maybe adjust um, a little bit of his base on the shot have him take a higher volume of threes and the rest of that is going to get easier for him. If he can then put the ball on the deck as a shooter and get to the basket, a lot more is going to open up. And then, like I said, I'd like to see him be a little bit more willing to probe in some of those situations. And I think that it cleans up some of the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, no, definitely. I agree with you. Uh, I think he's, uh, what, what do you think about him defensively? Yeah. So I mean, we didn't mention it, but I do think that he recorded a 40-inch vertical at the combine. Yeah, he, but he has does, crazy bounce. Yeah, and and lateral as well. Yeah. Like, it's not just his overall vertical jump. Like, he has those jump cuts that he can get to in transition, kind of like what I was saying about Josh Minot going through the double teams in the short corner. Like, he can do that in motion. Has some pretty good lateral speed and quickness in that regard as well. Um but he also has a negative wingspan. Mm-hmm. So I think that that limits him somewhat. Um, I wanted to go back. I specifically watched, because we had already watched Kansas play Baylor for our pod on Jeremy Sohan. And I remember thinking that he had several nice possessions against him, but Jeremy can also be you know, a little bit limited in his ability to get to the rim overall. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go pick and watch Kansas playing Miami in the tournament because you know Miami has such a guard-centric perimeter offense between Isaiah Wong and McGusty and he, and he took possessions against all three of their guards in that game mm-hmm. and got some fairly impressive stops against them in isolation. I like him a little bit better if you're a team that's going to be doing, you know, clean switches than I would if you're going to be defending and navigating screens. I wasn't thrilled with that. He didn't look as good holding up against those guards in those situations as he did um when a few of them just tried to flat out isolate. Um I think the game was tied in the third quarter at like 40-40. Kansas didn't start out great in the first half of that game. And, and, you know, Christian's definitely a competitor, definitely plays with some bravado and kind of goes on his own mini like 5-0 or 7-0 run between getting out in transition, um, getting some big stops against Bogusty, and then I, I think hitting a three. Um, so, I mean, he kind of changed. It's kind of the same situation that you'll see sometimes with the Pacers when, you know, TJ McConnell can come in and have some spark plug moments. I think he has that in him as a, as a competitor. Yeah, no, I like what you said. And I think I also, um, like, like you mentioned, especially with the wingspan, he's going to be somebody who I view more as, you know, defending down a position, you know, like guarding to smaller wings, maybe some guards, 
Um, but he, he does have the strength to hold up on some guys, but again, it's going to be more like the long closeouts and stuff where I think you're going to see some issues is the wrong way to put it, but it's just when you don't have the wingspan and, uh, to, to, to add just like that little extra, um, as a closeout guy, like, I do think that that's going to show up. Um, but I do think like generally, like, how do you, I, I kind of, I wouldn't saying kind of like him sounds very, like, very like, okay, neutral, but um, I think he makes some pretty solid plays as the low man. Um, and just in general, like he can get, uh, uh, he can make some plays around the rim, just, you know, in, in slides as well. I mean, where are you at with him as an off ball defender? Well, I will say on the closeout matter that his closeouts are fairly sublime and that he stays mm-hmm. very on balance. Like even if he runs somebody off, he can come in and get that second contest similar to what Tyrese can do when he's playing in an off-ball situation where he can move sideline to sideline, get out, and then run off the line, get back in, and contest the shot again, um, which is a valuable skill to have when you're down on the baseline. Um, I don't. I think that the overall take of Christian Brown as a player is I don't – he can do a lot of things, and I don't think he necessarily has a standout weakness, but I mostly see him tracking out as, like, a rotation-caliber wing. Yeah. Like, if, if everything pans out for him, that's what he is, which – I mean, I don't think it's necessarily uncommon in the 31 range, but if you're a team and this is kind of what I want to get into with, you know, what Kevin Pritchard had said and in, in the draft uh, draft lottery media availability that to me, like if we look at Josh Minot and Christian Brown, those are different teams that are taking those two players. Yeah. Like if the Pacers are a team that's going developmental and they see like, Hey, we could use some more wing defenders or, you know, more length and we're willing to be patient and develop that guy. Versus I feel like you could see Christian Brown going in the late first round to a team like the Milwaukee Bucks who thinks, hey, you know, we're still trying to be competitive and we see you as somebody that we could work into our rotation, hit spot up threes around Giannis, play some defense and maybe make some passes as well. So like if he were to slide, it does make me wonder if he was on the board, if, if, if the Pacers would really want to take him. Or if that's somebody that they might be thinking, oh, he's still on the board. A contender might want him. We might move number 31. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And I, I do think it's interesting, too, just because in general, like he's still like I, I think he's actually pretty young for a junior, too, if I remember correctly. I think he's 21. Yeah. Or like decently. So it's it's enough. But yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I mean, like still just even having young talent, even, even if it's more role player, still helpful. So, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him for sure. Yeah. Two other things that I didn't really mention that will come up in our last player as well, but he is somebody that will leave his feet when he gets into the lane and not really have um, a total plan, which is kind of a recurrent theme with a lot of the the guards on the Pacers roster to um, varying degrees of success. And then when you mentioned like playing the four spot, I did think that there was times he wasn't necessarily getting hunted, but if he did end up on a switch against the four, I could see that teams might look for that depending upon who they have on their roster. I think I I mainly see him as a guy guarding twos and threes. Yep. I think definitely. is where is where he slides in at. But um I think that mainly covers him. And then if we do want to get into the last guy, um, Jordan Hall, St. Joseph, sophomore. Um, I picked him because friend of the pod, Adam Spinella, had in his rumor rundown several weeks ago now, I think that he published that. He had said that Jordan Hall had drawn some attention from various teams, and in particular that he had had impressive workouts with the Warriors and the Pacers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I uh, he's interesting, and in terms of trying to figure out like how to view his game at the next level, I think he does a lot of things. Like, I mean, just the big thing for him is shooting, and he has versatility in his shot too. Like, he can he can come off screens, he can come off interior actions up to the up to the perimeter um capable of shooting out of pick and rolls um he has a pull-up game he was really good on catch and shoots this year as well um but out and, and I, I like granted like the passing too i think like he can do some really good stuff with like he'll show i'm i'm manipulation um he does make real uh really solid playmaking not playmaking geez. He, he makes really solid passers I cannot talk today, Caitlin. He makes really solid passes, like a genuinely quite good playmaker for his size. I think the issues are just going to come from what is happening with him getting inside the arc. Um, like, is there really anything there to get him to, to, to get his playmaking open? Um, 
like, again, like, of course, you're not drafting him to be a primary option or anything like that. But I do think if you're drafting him, you're like, okay, we want to get the most out of his shooting and, um, you know, use him maybe, you know, as a secondary action type guy. Like, I think the idea would be like, use him sort of like Doug McDermott when he was here. Um, although not to that same degree, but the issue is like, he does not have that inside the arc. Um, but uh, sorry, I'm going like way off the rails here, but where is that tracking kind of with what you saw? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would want to use him a lot more with ball screens than using him on off ball screens personally. Like I, I yeah. think he's his greatest threat is, is his pull-up shooting. Um, even though he didn't, he didn't really shoot the ball particularly right well from short mid range or the three point line, but, um, 71% of his shots is jump shots in the half court. That's a very high number for a guard. And also 41, 41% on twos this season, which is a very low number for a guard. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes he likes to use, you know, that long stride up fake when he gets it, when he gets into the lane, um, likes to use a lot of footwork and pump fakes to get to his shots. And some of that's like a burst issue, but it's also, there's times where he could get to the rim and he doesn't like he squanders some of those opportunities to a degree. But um, I do agree with you that he has shot 41% from the corners this year. So you could put him in and catch and shoot roles. Um, and that particular standpoint, his eye manipulation of the low man, pretty good processes passes pretty well can throw accurate lob passes. So if you were playing him like in bench situations, which again, like my guess is if you're taking Jordan Hall with pick number 58, he's, or, you know, a two-way contract, you're probably going to see him playing with the Maddians, um some, but if he were to play some bench minutes with the Pacers, maybe, you know, if Isaiah Jackson's coming off the bench, that could pair nicely, makes nice passes to the dunker spot as well. Um, and I do appreciate the fact that, like, I was watching them play Georgetown. He came off a screen, snaked his dribble, and did practically a U-turn to be able to get back to the three-point line. So, like, I, I think that I mainly like him being able to use some ball screens and secondary situations as well as being like a corner spot up shooter. But what you're saying is true. Like he's not getting to the rim a whole lot. Um, but at the same time, you know, obviously was probably doing a little more than you would want him to yeah. on a team that wasn't very good last year, but you know, 23 points, 11 rebounds, 9.7 assists per 100 possessions. So almost average a triple double per 100 possessions. That's interesting, especially at his size, where it might be willing, you know, interesting for the Pacers to take a flyer on him. Defensively is yeah. a very different story. Yes. Um, yeah, I think this is where I I should have like yeah, because I totally agree in how he uses um, using screens is his his ideal thing. My issue would be more of a, I think I, I brought up the Doug McDermott comp because it kind of made me think of Doug defensively a lot. Um, like, and that's not to be unfair to Doug. I think it's more like I Doug might be a better defender than Jordan Hall. Um, like I, I think he just, to me, he doesn't really have the athleticism to cover smaller players while also not having awesome instincts off the ball either to play more at the four. And even then, like, I think his physicality is a little bit of a problem too. Like, I don't know if you watched the Villanova game, but he got absolutely ragdolled by anybody for Villanova. And part of that too is like Villanova's in like probably the best uh, I mean, like the, the strongest team in the country to a degree, but like, I, I do think that really showed out, especially playing against some borderline NBA caliber athletes at Villanova. Yeah, I think, I mean, his lack of foot speed shows up in almost every context. Like he's yeah. going to get, he gets blown by on the perimeter. Um, he has basically no recovery speed when he does get beat um, very straight up and down as a defender in almost every sense. Um, I did watch the UMass game and one play that stood out was, was it's kind of the opposite of what I said about Christian Brown and that, you know, even if he does run and is somewhat initially, you know, runs the guy off the line with a flyby closeout or even leaves his feet jumping on the closeout, he can still get back into the play and recover and, and contest the next shot. Once, once Jordan Hall gets beat, like there, he was in rotation, contested out to the wing, got beat and actually corner peeled that on a slot drive. Which like I I like appeal switch, but that felt very telling to me that it was just like, well I'm beat, I'm gonna recover to the corner, and I'm just gonna let that the big take that guy. Like there was no hope that he was getting back yeah. in that play. So um, that stood out to me quite a bit, and I think that yeah, I don't want to say patient, but you'd have to hope that the offense and the pull up shooting and what he does as a passer is enough to outweigh some of that. But um, 
I do think that it would be interesting on a two-way contract to see what yeah, you can do um, with the Mad Ants. I think, you know, there's enough other stuff there to, to be intrigued. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Especially like you're talking about like in the second round or on a, on a two-way, like that's, that's a really interesting player. If, because again, like if the offense really hits, like that's a, an awesome rotation player in my mind, like that's somebody who gives you some lineup versatility. Again, I do think the, the defense would be interesting to figure out, but just having players who can, who can bend a defense with, with shooting gravity like that. And he has like, I mean, he'll, he can pull from deep range too. Like, it's not just like straight up on the line. Um, and the, the, I don't know, just having more players who can, who can make good decisions and, and make advanced reads too. Like that's, that's useful. So I think he's definitely somebody worth trying. I think that wraps up the second round, uh, lightning round for today. Um, depending upon what happens this weekend with the Pacers and um, if there's any trades that we need to cover in podcast and written form, if there's not, we might still have time to squeeze in one more draft podcast before Thursday. That's all. That's, that's what the people want. You know, they all the, they want us to just cover the draft strictly now. <laughs> yep. Just keep bringing up niche two way guys for our contract while everyone else is talking about, you know, DeAndre and this is kind of our niche mark. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Just with spent it 15 now. minutes talking about Jordan Hall instead of, you know, potential center who could be signing, you know, max money contract. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what gets me going in the morning. So it, you know, it, it works. Well, Caitlin, this was a blast as always to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. Be sure to eat some outshine. It's it's very nice outside. Uh, I have been on my outshine grind, as I'm sure Caitlin has. Caitlin, what what flavor of outshine have you been eating? Actually, I still I am I always keep a box of strawberry. You ha- you yeah. have to have that as a staple. That's just a staple box. And then I still have, I've kind of been on the pomegranate groove lately. Okay, um, that's a nice break because I really do like pomegranate. But the problem with eating pomegranate in general is it's just like a lot of work. It's a lot of work to clean it. And then you have all the seeds you buy a pomegranate outshine. You you still get all of the benefits of the fruit without any of the work. I just open up a wrapper. So, um, I've been working on that one. I'm still in search. I have not tried the grape yet. And I feel like, you know, if I'm going to be on this podcast talking about these popsicles, I really need to have tried the available flavors. Well, I think you should get lime. That's my favorite. one. I've tried the lime. I've tried the lime many times. That sounded Um, uh, very derogatory towards lime. Oh, no, I don't. I don't have any outshine popsicle that I would turn down. There's not a single one that would be in the fridge. I'd be like, I'm not eating that. But it's I find it to be a little bit. I like the lemon better than the lime if I'm picking between the two. Well, I'm going to stick with my lime. So <laughs> it was just, yeah, uh, I need to try some more flavors, but lime just has had me captivated recently. Uh, I know what I'm getting with it. So it's, it's lime would make, uh, I'm sure lime would make a delightful stir stick. If you had like cranberry juice and you put a lime outshine into that, that'd be good. What? Have you tried this? I no, I've done I've this with the popsicles. Oh yeah. Like I've taken the, I took. Oh yeah, I took a lime one, one. No, a strawberry one. I took a strawberry one and put it into the Giannis fifty fifty. So I had lemonade and sprite and put the strawberry oh in. Put the strawberry in as a pop. Like it was basically like ice cubes, strawberry ice cubes and and lemon lemonade sprite. It's very good. That, I think the I think the lime would totally work as ice cubes and cranberry juice. I think that would be good. I'll I'll have to think about trying that sometime. That just sounds so sweet to me. Um. But worth, worth contemplating. I'll get there in time. Well, Caitlin, this, this was great. To everyone listening, thank you again for listening. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.